Father, we do thank you for the reality that uh, you speak through your word. Lord, we open up uh, this book as a church, as a church family on Sundays uh, and, and gather around it together morning and evening. And Lord, we do so because we trust that not only is this a book that is breathed by you, which was written over the centuries in the past, but that it still speaks by your Spirit today. And so we pray that we would know that, that as we've sung of the goodness of Jesus, that we would have that experience of hearing his words as if we were sitting at his feet and coming to him and receiving from him all that he would do in our lives as his word uh, shapes us and transforms us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I wonder this morning, as you think about your life, whether you count your life as fortunate. Do you count yourself this morning, to use Jesus' word in that passage, as blessed? Having read Matthew 5, of course, we may have uh, have cause to have reassessed that already. But as you think about that question... And all of us have an interest in that, don't we? The state of our lives, good in our lives. Think about the metrics by which you gauge that. We all have a sense, don't we, of what it is to be getting on really well in life. There are markers or benchmarks by which we measure. So, as a teenager, leaves home and heads off to university and his parents are asked, parents are asked, how are they doing? If it is going really well, they might say they're flourishing and begin to describe that a little bit. He's doing really well, settling in, making some friends, or he's managed to wash his own clothes, hasn't asked for money yet, has found the library. And as as we get older, the bar perhaps gets a little bit higher. The idea of uh, living life well might include a holiday abroad each year, or promotion at work, or the kids turning out all right, the possibility of early retirement. But I guess you notice, as Jesus describes what it is to be blessed, the flourishing in those opening words of his sermon, he uses None of those metrics. Jesus describes a fortunate life, and we read, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those persecuted because of righteousness. And let's be honest, we don't naturally associate those things with a thriving life. We associate those things with a hard and a difficult life. In fact, you might sit here this morning and say, I feel broken. There are things that grieve me so that much of the time I feel like I am mourning. Or I've been aware over these past weeks of how small and frail and fallen I am. But with those things, I don't sense blessing. I don't see myself as fortunate. 
In fact, quite possibly that suggestion might make you a little bit angry. So what's going on here? This is much more than a logic problem or a riddle to solve, isn't it? Because Jesus is talking about life, our lives, particularly the lives of those who would be disciples of his. Jesus is talking about the experience of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus. And my guess, there, all of you who are here who would call yourselves Christians don't think that following Jesus is easy. In fact, the New Testament tells us to expect the opposite. Do you remember Paul's words to the churches in Acts chapter 14? Oh, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of heaven. I was reading this week of the, the, some of the letters between a chap called Franz Jägerstatter and his wife. Jägerstatter was an Austrian farmer and a devout Catholic who during the Second World War is taken by the Nazis to be enlisted in the army, but he refuses to serve. Eventually this leads to his execution. And he writes in June 1940 to his wife, he says this, we must go courageously on the way of suffering, whether we begin sooner or later. They, and he says this, they may build many beautiful streets today, but they cannot change the way to heaven. This way will always remain rugged and rocky. What Jesus says here chimes with that. And yet he pronounces, blessed are you. In Romans chapter 15, in fact, if I hadn't the screen, I would have put it on the verse. You might want to turn up there. In Romans chapter 15, we read this in verse 13. Romans 15, verse 13, Paul prays for the church in this way. He says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you look at that verse, where is the source of hope and joy, and peace. Does Paul say you get joy and peace by seeing everything work out perfectly in your life? Does he say that? No. Paul doesn't say God will fill you with joy and peace by sparing you from every challenging thing. God doesn't make, give you joy and peace by making your days all sunny and bright. Now, what does Paul pray? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. Or as some versions have it, as you believe in him. There is a different fr difference, friends, in the Bible between knowing by feeling we're big on that in our culture, aren't we? Knowing by feeling and knowing by faith. Knowing by believing. The confidence that God is good comes not from looking around at our circumstances, but believing in God's promises. We walk by faith rather than by sight.
believing certain things that God has said, particularly about himself and his work through the Lord Jesus. That is what Paul prays and tells us produces real joy and peace and abounding hope in your life. It means, and you might have had experience of this, it means that we may have times in our lives when we read and know that God is an ever-present help in times of trouble, not because we feel that in the moment, but because we trust that. We know and experience that by faith. By faith. And of course, that is a bold claim, isn't it? It can make Christianity look naive, pie in the sky, unrelated to reality. And perhaps nowhere more does that jar than here in Matthew 5. As Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, the meek, etc., But according to Jesus, to them, is the kingdom of heaven. These beatitudes are framed by that phrase, aren't they? The first one and the last one end in that same way. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice that this group that Jesus calls blessed live in this world yet they belong to an entirely different kingdom. Not of this world, but of heaven. Is that something you will always feel? No. It's a matter of faith. Friends, the Beatitudes are not commands in one sense. They are statements, aren't they? That's how they read. They're descriptors of what a flourishing life looks like. For those on whom heaven's kingdom has has broken in through Jesus. But that does not mean they cannot shape our being and believing as disciples. Jesus, if you like, in these Beatitudes, draws alongside us and wants to refocus our gaze. To see the joy, the hope and peace that has arrived in the kingdom of heaven coming near. And that's my hope for us this morning. To see again, dear brother and sister, whatever your circumstances, if you belong to Christ, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, to remind you why to lay hold of these statements, to trust Christ's word as a true source of hope and joy, and peace in your life. So three steps in getting there. We're going to consider the context of the Beatitudes, the claim of the Beatitudes, and finish by just, in an overall sense, considering the comfort of these Beatitudes. Context, the claim, the comfort. Firstly then, the context in which these Beatitudes, these statements are given. Many of you, I am sure, are familiar with these verses. In fact, the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. When I was growing up at school, it wasn't uncommon for parts of that to be used in the school assembly, not because it was a particularly Christian assembly, but just to reinforce self-evident ethical standards. 
do unto others as you would have them do to you, for example. Yet, such is the way that perhaps many of us have been introduced to this sermon, or parts of it, is that means that we can isolate the teaching, if you like, from the context that it's given in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew didn't reach this part of his Gospel and was lacking inspiration and so thought, I know what I'll do, I'll just copy and paste one of Jesus' sermons in at this point. It's not what's going on, is it? The sermon is reproduced in this account, in this Gospel, at this point, because it develops the understanding of who Jesus is and why he came. In the previous chapter, Jesus has begun his public ministry with these words. Chapter 4, verse 17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus begins his ministry with the announcement of the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom. Remember how Matthew earlier records how the Magi, as they come looking for Jesus, ask Herod, don't know, where is the one-born king, king of the Jews? Matthew announces Jesus as the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He has that genealogy, doesn't he, in chapter 1, outlining those, those important Old Testament figures to say that Jesus is one in David's line who will be God's forever king, who will fulfill the promises made to Abraham that the whole world will be blessed through Abraham's descendant. He is the one, Matthew's saying. And Matthew, in chapter 1, very deliberately sets out how Jesus is the one who will be the dawn of a new beginning for God's people, who will bring an end to the exile between them and God. Indeed, in his name, he will be the one who saves his people from their sins. And so rescue and redemption and the arrival of God's kingdom are the context for this sermon. Many commentators notice, if you like, that parallel in these opening verses of the chapter of Jesus going up the mountain, gathering his disciples with Moses at Sinai, just as Moses leads the people out of Egypt, brings them to Sinai to give them the law, the rule of flourishing, if you like, for Old Testament Israel. And here is Jesus the one greater than Moses, the true rescuer of God's people, casting a vision of life under the reign of the king of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the context in which Matthew places this sermon enables us to be clear that these Beatitudes, indeed the whole sermon, is not about the entry requirements for the kingdom of heaven. If you want to be included, you need to work on your poverty spirit and your meekness. You better chop some more onions because you need to shed more tears and mourn more than you do. No, that's not it. Rather, by the abundant generosity of God, heaven itself in Jesus has come near. Here is the one who would really bring redemption, life in all its fullness to his people, making broken people whole, as the Old Testament foretold. The gracious life-giving rescue has come, and, and he has come and he has announced the kingdom. Matthew's given us a flavor of that, of the impact of his presence in the previous chapter, hasn't he? If you even look back at verse 23 of chapter 4, 
Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and illness among the people. You can imagine the scene, can't you? No NHS winter crisis in Galilee when Jesus was there. No bed shortage, no queuing in the corridors of A&E as Jesus proclaims the good news of the kingdom and heals every disease and illness amongst the people, not because the people have demonstrated that they were poor in spirit or could mourn or be humble before Jesus, but Jesus brings the blessing of his rule among their lives because the kingdom of God is breaking through in his Son. There is a new world order coming. And can you see the hope it offers to those who understand this world is not all it is, should be? It's broken. That's the context that we understand the claims of these Beatitudes. That context. So secondly, the claim they make. The claim they make. When I was growing up, uh, there were adverts on TV for Hamlet cigars. Maybe you remember Uh, there was this reassuring pattern to those adverts of some poor man trying to achieve something which went horribly wrong each time. No matter how hard he tried, it never worked out. The man would resign himself to his failure, light his cigar, and a voice would tell us happiness is a cigar called Hamlet. And the brilliance of those adverts, what made them so memorable was that they made us laugh as they showed us the truth about life. That it can be messy and doesn't always turn out how we hope. It reminds us of life's limitations and, in its own way, offered an alternate route to happiness, albeit the very dubious one of Hamlet Cigars. As Jesus lists the characteristics of the blessed in these verses, he lists, doesn't he, think about this, many of the consequences of living in a broken world. If you like, he confronts us with it. Poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt, because of the breakdown in relationship between humanity and God, mourning about all that is wrong. As you see the pictures in the news, Gaza, in this world, but also in our lives, recognizing that the state of our lives is such that people really, on the whole, don't really see, do we, what a mess we really are. Meekness. Thirst comes from drought, doesn't it? We hunger and thirst for righteousness because it's in scarce supply. We need to be merciful because we experience injustice. That's the only context you need to be merciful, isn't it? There is a battle to be pure in in heart, for we live in a world full of temptation, and more fundamentally because our own hearts deceive us and thinking that we will be all right drinking from broken cisterns from the sewers, rather than from the fountain of life itself, God. We need to make peace because we live in a world of hatred. We face persecution for righteousness because naturally all human beings have rejected God and love the darkness 
because, as Jesus says, our deeds are evil. Do you see? Jesus is speaking about a group of people who recognize through personal experience of themselves and the world that something is terribly wrong. Those of you here last Sunday morning will remember how we were looking at Joshua chapter 24 and Tom so helpfully opened up that chapter where Joshua reminds the people that their very existence is entirely due to the grace of God to them and their continuing to be God's people is entirely due to the grace of God to them. And remember, there are those striking verses in that chapter where after Joshua calls the people to fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness, People respond, don't they, and declare they will serve the Lord because he is their God. And Joshua responds, you are not able to serve the Lord. You can't do it. He's holy. And the people insist they can. And Joshua says, you are witnesses against yourselves. And what does the rest of the Old Testament prove? Who's right? Who's right? Joshua or the people? Despite blessing and the provision of the Lord, the story of the Old Testament proves Joshua right, doesn't he? The people are unable to serve the Lord, despite their best intentions in front of Joshua. The people squander God's blessing. They are exiled. And even in returning, they are a shadow of what was promised to Abraham and David. They are unable to live with and serve a holy God. When you consider the history of Old Testament Israel, the promise and the reality of their situation, that that people in the first century, in Jesus' day, would they be feeling pride or failure as they reflected on the promises? Satisfied or longing? By the way, the story of our lives is similar. But Jesus says, this is it, isn't it? Jesus comes to such and says, there's hope. There's hope. Even though they had made such a mess of it, there's yet hope. Into history, Jesus comes, and in his coming, God's kingdom comes near. The rule of God in Jesus is manifest. As we pointed to, it reverses things that are broken and sad within our world. And Jesus declares, the way things are is not the way they will always be. That trouble and struggle and brokenness and injustice, that dog's life so often will be done away with. His message, repent, turn to him, believe. You see, like the people of Jesus' day, we need to see again that we are not only victims of this broken world. We are not Cinderella waiting for the fairy godmother and a handsome prince. No truth be told, we are the ugly sisters. We don't just need a party dress. We need whole new hearts. We are just as much conspirators as victims. What Joshua said about the people in his day is true about us as well today. We don't simply need a fairy godmother. We need an advocate. We need ransoming. We need a rescuer who will save his people from their sins and here is jesus declaring that to those who embrace that be glad and rejoice a new day is coming
Blessed are you. You see, when Jesus uses that word blessed, it is a word used to make a pronouncement based upon an observation that a certain way of being in the world produces flourishing. A situation that others might wish they share. Fortunate, we said earlier, might be another way of understanding it. But of course, the claim of these Beatitudes is dependent on the coming of the kingdom, entirely dependent on the coming of the kingdom. Jesus is not simply saying, happy are those who've worked out, life is broken. No, each of those statements, each of those beatitudes about flourishing, being found in a state of spiritual poverty or mourning or meekness or thirsting for righteousness only makes sense because of the second half of each beatitude. It might be better to read the word for in each of those verses as because, because it underlines that the second half of each beatitude shows why the first half is to be considered fortunate. Why are the poor in spirit blessed? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why might we say good on you to those who mourn at the state of the world and their own souls? Because God's King has come and will comfort you. Why might you say to the person who is amazed that God and man think of him as well as they do, boy, are you ever lucky? Because the kingdom, reversal of, by the kingdom's reversal of fortunes, they will inherit the earth. For those who hunger for justice, the righteousness of God, fear not it is coming and so on. They force us to consider, don't they, each of these, where is our hope? The coming of the kingdom? This King Jesus who changes everything? Can you see that? Will you trust him? Turn, repent, believe. Perhaps it's helpful as we grasp that to think back in Israel's history to their days in Egypt. Consider an Israelite, a slave in Egypt, oppressed, downclassed, calling out to God to do something, hungering for justice in their life, trusting in the promises given to their ancestors and seeking to live as an Israelite. Do they feel happy in Egypt in slavery? Possibly not. Is their state of affairs a flourishing one? Well, the answer would depend on whether you measure that from Egyptian standards or by the unbreakable promises of a God of love. But what mattered on the day the plague started coming? Egyptian standards or the promises of the God of love? What mattered the day when Moses told them to prepare a lamb and put the blood on the doorposts? What mattered that night when the angel of death passed through Was it Egyptian standards or God's unbreakable promises? Who was in a true state of flourishing that night? The Israelites. Why? Because God was rescuing his people. Just so those who seek a better world built on God's unbreakable promises in Christ and his kingdom are really living. You are 
because that kingdom is really coming. Do you believe that? See, Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust in him. Jesus is urging us to faith, to understand our lives through the framework of God's promises in the coming of Jesus, to leverage that in our lives. That is the claim. Rejoice those who recognize the need of God's gracious rescue of heaven's king. The stories are true. Jesus makes all things new. So let's explore the overall comfort that these words offer. Thirdly, comfort. When the plague hit London in the uh, 17th century, the English minister Samuel Shaw's family was hit hard. The family itself lost two children. Shaw himself ministered to and buried countless people. And he wrote about those days, and he speaks of such trouble shifting people's hopes from what he calls created fullness to uncreated fullness. Created fullness is, he describes as the fullness we try to find in our things, money, health, success. He writes, poverty empties your money, sickness empties your health. Old age empties your potential. Suffering empties your sense of well-being. But Shaw said, once disenchanted with created fullness, you can begin to embrace uncreated fullness. Shaw writes of that. Then is a soul raised to its just altitude, to the very height of its being, where it can spend all its powers upon the supreme and self-sufficient good, spreading and stretching itself upon God with full contentment and wrapping up itself entirely in him. This, he says, is the soul's way of living above losses. And so he, and he that so lives though he may often be a loser, yet shall never be at a loss. For who will value, he says, the spilling of dishwater, who has a well of living water at his back door? As we've said, Jesus confronts us, doesn't he, through these verses with the state of being that results from facing up to the reality, the natural situation of this world under the curse jesus is suggesting to us telling us that outside of his kingdom there's no real blessing yes people might entertain themselves with created fullness to use shaw's language but those things will be emptied by life's course on its own that leads to despair but because heaven's kingdom has dawned in the coming of jesus there's a path of hope joy peace flourishing And so as we draw things to a close, I want to spell out three lines of comfort. Three lines of comfort. Firstly, however messed up your life is, Jesus offers hope. Jesus offers hope to your life and mine. These Beatitudes speak, don't they, of reversal. Back in Isaiah 61, the prophet speaks of Jesus' coming in this way. Jesus reads these words, doesn't he? In Luke's Gospel, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, 
to proclaim freedom from the captives, to release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Look at the reversals of fortunes he brings. Good news to the poor. Freedom for captives. Comfort to all who mourn. Who crowns his people in beauty. Who turns sorrow to joy and laughter. Do you need this king? Do you recognize your need of his loving restoration in your life? Do you see that without this Messiah, you are poor, broken-hearted, a prisoner, a captive with a future of ashes and mourning. If you're starting out investigating Christianity, it begins, friend, and continues by coming to the feet of Jesus. In him is hope, always hope. So he can say, he can say, blessed are those who mourn. Second shard of comfort. A beam of light for us in this world. It's obvious, isn't it, as we read these Beatitudes, Jesus is saying, this world is not all there is. This world is not all there is. A new day is coming. For those who mourn, for the meek, those hungering for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemaker, the persecuted, what does Jesus say? You will be comforted. You will inherit the earth. You will be filled. You will be shown mercy. You will see God. You will be called sons of God. Great is your reward in heaven. Paul writes, doesn't he, that if the resurrection of Christ did not happen, Christians are to be most pitied. But he then writes, Christ has risen from the dead, the first fruits. In Christ, all will be made alive. In your, the struggle of your walk, whether that be the strange providences of your life, of battle with sin, the pain of not seeing God's kingdom come and be manifest in the way that you would like to see it right now. Jesus' promises remain sure. He will make all things new. Believe the gospel this morning. Believe the gospel. And thirdly, third one, today with all its trouble is not meaningless. Today, Christian, with all its trouble is not meaningless. We share in the suffering of Christ. We share in the suffering of Christ. The Beatitudes can seem so paradoxical to us because we continually misunderstand the nature of the kingdom of heaven and the brokenness of our world we hear the world kingdom and we think power and we consider the impact of power in our own world where it seems that maximum gain is produced from personal minimal personal pain that's why we have power but that's not the kingdom of heaven the kingdom of heaven comes through the cross of shame through a king who lays down his life for the rescue of sinners and through that path of suffering is given all authority in heaven and in earth 
the kingdom comes to us not because we are poor in spirit or mourning or weak, but because the king rescues spiritually bankrupt people. The king, for our sake, became poor. He mourns for our sin to an extent that he will bring comfort to sinners. He enables the unjust to be righteous. He is the great peacemaker, the great benefactor of mercy, lavishing it on the worst of sinners, the one who is persecuted, who is falsely accused, but bears it all so that his broken people might flourish. He takes the curse, and so you are blessed. While the fullness of that blessing is ahead, Jesus says to you this morning, our citizenship is secure, for yours is the kingdom of heaven, Christian. But on the rocky road to heaven today, see also Christ's rule is manifest in your life. Remember Paul's words in Romans eight seventeen, where he uses the language of heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. But what is the path? Paul puts it like this, we are co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. These Beatitudes put flesh on that for you, Christian. Do you see the reality of these experiences and longings and battles in our life in the midst of this broken world are not something to seek to avoid by pursuing created fullness, but instead are the very markers that you are a co-heir with Christ. The struggles of your life, the battle against temptation, the thirst for a better world and a purer heart is not punishment or judgment or a homage to regret, but fellowship with your Saviour. Fellowship with the King. These realities in a person's life are the means by which we lose our life to die with Christ only to be raised. Do we feel this day by day? Not always. There are many lonely days, aren't there? But here our faith rests as you trust in Him. See your life through the eye of faith. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. If you are right with God through Christ, you have a deep reality-based happiness based upon the truth that you are made right with the happy God of Scripture who created you and wired you to be happy. Up until your sins are forgiven, you have been trying to satisfy your happiness and find it in all these cul-de-sacs and dead-end streets. But to take of Christ, now you are truly, you find happiness in God. Blessed are you. Let's pray. Father, you know our lives. 
you know that most naturally we are often aware of the pain and the struggle and the hardship. Lord, we thank you for the breaking in of heaven. We thank you that even as your enemies, you loved us in that way, that Christ came and laid down his life for us, that we might be co-heirs with him. And we pray that through this series, you would help us to see the blessing that it is, not simply in the future, yes then, but also in the present of living with our eyes fixed on our Saviour and walking his path. May we know the blessing, day by day, even this week, of fellowship with the only one who has loved us in the way Christ has, to lay down his life for sinners like us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.